This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Tom and Jess on Joy. We are thrilled to be on the line with Aussie singer-songwriter, musician, guitar extraordinaire. We know him by many names, as many as Prince maybe, but really we all know him as the legend Diesel. We're so excited to be chatting to you and and we can see you. How are you doing, Diesel? I'm good. I'm really good, thank you. It's so exciting. Well, Diesel, you have been described as Australia's most gifted natural musician and as you said, you play multiple (laughs) instruments. Look, did you study music? Well, I've heard it described as written in print. Yeah. Wow, man. That's, that's like, wow. That's, that's like, when I think of that, I think of Stevie Wonder and, you know, Prince and people like that uh, or Jacqueline Dupree or, you know, <laughs> like, but, yeah, look, I think, you know, I've, I've got a lot of, I think, I would, you know, with the Jewish people would say horsepower. That's what I've got, you know. Ah, uh, like, yeah. I'll have a go at anything, you know. No, that was exactly right. I wanted to know, you know, where did the music inspiration come from? To did you, It's always been early in your life. Do you? Picked yeah. up instruments when you were a kid and just naturally played? I think I'm a product of uh, being at the bottom of seven siblings. Funny enough, though, ironically, the guitar, except for my eldest sister who sort of took off the first, she had an acoustic guitar, which I vaguely remember, but after that, the guitar sailed out of the house and it was like flutes and saxophones and, you know, electric pianos maybe. Things, yeah, cool things, but like the guitar, until I finally got one from my sister and brother at, uh, for Christmas when I was 13 or 14 because before that was cello and, and that kept me like happy because it had strings. But in the meantime, you know, we're talking like 1978 or something and, you know, my, my little eight-year-old wanted a guitar so bad even then I was listening to like things like Hotel California That's on fine. the radio and I was trying to like play it on the cello and it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> no. I, you know, I needed Jack Black to come in at that point and just go, here's the guitar. It's not as cool, is it? A cello is good. (laughs) But my only reference to cello and rock, which which is quite funny, and I hope you guys know this band, but, you know, Jeff Lynne's Electric Light Orchestra. Oh, yes. ELO. Like watching on a Saturday morning, like the the, some video for like, you know, they had a lot Mm. of hits, ELO, but there was a white cello on stage. Yes. In the... and a, a dude who was just like ripping on this white cello. But even then my brain went, hmm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Like yeah. <laughs> cellos, I, like, I love the sound of cello, but it just doesn't quite resonate like like an electric guitar in front of an amp, you know? No. So well, that didn't quite suffice for me. That wasn't enough of an image to make me think, that's where I'm going to go. So I finally got the guitar and, <laughs> yeah, but in my house there was all kinds of instruments and I, I think that was the kind of thing that the catalyst for me to sort of think, you know, it's a big wide ecosystem of, of music out there. And I didn't feel like it was limited to one thing. So I just sampled everything. And yeah, I'm glad you picked up the guitar because uh, I mean, my age, I grew up in the eighties watching Johnny Diesel and the ejectors getting about. And I had a bit of a crush on you that, Swagger, that hair, it was <laughs> like, let me check. But, yeah, I was, I was a little, I mean, I've seen some videos of me on Saturday morning TV from that time, like when we just started breaking out of, of WA and came over and, man, what an asshole I was. I was, well, at least I come across it. I think I was just really painfully shy. But oh, I, on some of those TV shows where they just ask me questions and I just go, oh, I don't know, you know, it's just <laughs> a few little shit. 
Yeah. Yeah, look, I'm... I'm a Perth girl too. I still find that that's sometimes my answer because I was like, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I just say I'm from Perth and hope it well, explains yeah, it things. I know, well, it does. I mean, there's a real sort of like whatever devil may care sort of attitude, I think, in WA. It's like nothing sort of is it's like, yeah, you know, definitely like a bit of a tall poppy thing way way before I heard that, that expression. But it's funny that you said that you're an asshole because... I happen to um, I happen to know that you're not actually. Um, look, I've got a little mini confession. I met you years and years and years and years ago. I was actually very good friends with Nathan Cavalieri, but I didn't tell you that. Oh yes. Um, at the time, but one thing I noticed because I got to hang out with a few people with him and stuff was that you are lovely to everyone around you. And even when he knew that I was interviewing you today, because we're still friends. <laughs> He said nice. he is the big brother that I wish everyone in the world had. He is, Aww, so, nice. Do you think that that's part of your longevity, that you've had, you know, that people love you? They love you. So say so you're an arsehole's hilarious, but maybe you did it before the social media times. I think, I think I've, you know, look, I, I, I think you reap what you sow. I think I learned a long time ago that it was a lot harder to be, you know, it's like whenever I'd come across someone that was like prickly, I'd be like, whoa, what was that about? You know, like, gee, note to self. And it's just hard. I think it's ultimately harder. Like even when it's an awful situation, just, you know, be nice, be whatever, kill them with kindness because ultimately it's like most of the time, just like as they say, you know, in the Bible, turn the other cheek or whatever, it's <laughs> probably going to be better. Let's face it. So, you know, I wasn't really like, I went through that awful teenage period where you can easily go somewhere this way or that way. And luckily I got into a fold with people that were like 10 years older than me when I was 14, 15 and started playing in bands. And they, you know, they say it takes a village to bring up uh, one person, you know, it's true. You know, I think I was definitely a product of, of just good mentoring. Being the youngest of seven, there's one thing that I kind of, I guess was a bit gypped out of. And I've, I've kind of I used to say to mum, a lot like why can't I have a brother? And she'd be like, "No, just like just." <laughs> but you know, yeah. someone like Nathan has been in great for me because it's that baby brother that I never got to have, you know. And uh, it's been really nice to sort of helping him through stuff. And I guess on a much deeper level, you know, first it's just music, 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 music. But you know, as you're probably, I'm sure you're aware of, like when he started discovering or giving like things like anxiety a name. Um, mm -hmm. which, you know, for me, I, when I look back on, I mean, I've, I've been suffering from anxiety since I was like in the womb probably, but mm -hmm. you know, you don't have a name for it when you're a kid, you just think no. what's going on and you don't have that someone to say, Oh, that's anxiety. You know, um, this is how you deal with it. Or here's some tools. You just sort of, you know, and you're not alone. Like, that, there's that, a lot that, of adults that are still like struggling. And my dad, you know, which is like, we cried when, when, when he, when he told us, but when he was 84, you know, and he kicked on like 10 years, I think at this point after my mum passed very young in her life with a, uh, with a rare lung disease, but he was in his care home and he, he was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm feeling really anxious. And we, I just looked at my brother and went, oh, and I said, dad, it's okay. It's, it's anxiety. Mm. Like bring, join the club. Come on in. You know, like, yeah. but like he'd been through his whole life. He'd been in the Navy. He'd been a stoic man, you know, like, you know, like built from strong stuff. And then at 84, he suddenly was like, just having that feeling like of, of, of that, you know, a, a modern sort of, uh, and, and was able to kind of express it in a modern way. 
And it was just like, yeah, it, it brought tears to my eyes because I thought, well, you know, you're never too old. And it, it was no. great. Because I, was, I was able to give him something that day, you know. Oh. So it's pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. Diesel, <laughs> you have been going for over 30 years, as Jess said, and we've had, you've been on multiple albums and been part of it. But I'm going to guess that your career highlight definitely would have been reaching number 11 on the charts with the single from the 1989 movie, The Delinquents, starring my favourite person, Kylie Minogue. I have a little oh, tattoo of her. Dear, <laughs> beautiful. You know, we were, um, we were in Memphis and, to be honest, like TV, um, just stuff that's like in the main, in that, in that mainstream time. That We're talking 1988 when we went to Memphis to record because the album came out in 89. Nine, yeah. So... Um, the rest of my band at the time, especially our drummer, was obsessed with Kylie. And I think there was the Rolling Stone <laughs> magazine that would yep. end up in our carry-on luggage from Australia that had the, you know, the full thing on Kylie at that time. And this is probably just around the time or just before or just after that she'd hooked up with, with Michael Hutch. And so suddenly her, her like wagon just became like a lot more colourful. Mm. But in, in the house... The rest of the band had made the pilgrimage to Graceland and I was like, I don't want to go to Graceland. From what you guys have told me, it sounds really depressing um, and I don't want to see where someone was trapped in a in a racquetball court or squash court, as we call it here, like in his last days and where he had, you know, the, t- the upstairs toilets not, you know, you're allowed. And I, and I was like, no, I don't want to go to Graceland. So they started grabbing all these bits of, you know, memorabilia, like license plates and stuff. But anyway, this shrine started building in the house that we were renting as we were recording because we were there for like six weeks and it was like the Kylie and Elvis shrine. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when we got the, we, you know, that whole period went so fast, then boom, back out on the road again. Next thing you know, we're touring through, you know, as they say, uh, butt crack America. um, And, uh, and we get the call from the manager saying, uh, which who's, his wife has actually did the music uh, on that film. She was a music supervisor. And they wanted a recording of that, of that old blues song, Please Send Me Someone to Love. And we got sent the song and we were literally like the bus, was, we were on the bus the day before. It was, was the whole thing happened in the space of about 24 hours. <laughs> we, the producer kind of flew into this studio in Texas um, a producer at the time, Terry Manning, and bus pulled in. We pulled it all piled into the studio, listened to the song. All right, okay, this is yep. All right, ready to go. Boom, did the song, got back on the bus. <laughs> oh, wow. Kind of forgot about it, but it was like, um, well, that felt nice. That was, that's, that was, that was a fun day. And it was kind of like a bit of a break from the grind of what we were doing at the time. And then, yeah, next thing you know, the movie's out. And I think I remember going to the premiere, um, and it was the first time I'd heard a song that we recorded, even though it was faint sort of in the background, it gets turned up for just like a couple of like maybe 10 seconds or something. And then it goes back down again with the dialogue, but it was still a big buzz to kind of like, be, Oh wow, we're in a movie. You know, like the songs in the movie. Pretty, pretty exciting stuff. Oh, you will always be up here with Tom as soon as, as soon as there's any link <laughs> with Kylie, like if there's, yeah. <laughs> his yeah. face lights up, if there's some way he can add Kylie. <laughs> I have met her a few times since then. Um, and yeah, she's just like pretty salty, good sort. Yeah. 
I, I've got to meet her a few times, but I don't think stalking counts as well, is it? You know, like <laughs> AVOs. But we'll talk about another interview. Yeah. You're not the first. <laughs> no. Photos always look great. Look, um, we probably should. We, we will otherwise we'll just chat here all day. Oh, I want to ask, what have, what have you got? You, you have been in isolation. So mm. you've been doing the self-isolating in Sydney, isn't it? Yeah, so what, what, yeah. what's come of it? How, how have you been able to get the creative juices going in isolation as opposed to any other time? Like you've, you've been forced to stop. Which is- yeah, well, it was pretty um, crazy. Uh, first it was like 500 capacity. Oh, okay. Well, a lot of them in the shows that I've got coming up probably fit into that thing and then it went down to down. Yeah. And then we really realised pretty quickly it's like, no, this is not a reality. Um, and so you know, kind of accepted that. I was like, okay. And then it it's becomes like the reality with my daughter. Uh, she was in LA and the same thing was sort of happening there. So, you know, making that phone call where I kind of had to sort of go as dramatic as I've, I've, I look back now and think that was pretty dramatic for me to say that, but I had to sort of say, cause she hadn't quite got her head around the whole enormity of it. And I said, look, <laughs> you need to get in the lifeboat. You know, you either can isolate yeah. there or you get in the lifeboat. Um, but you need to get in a lifeboat. So she jumped on a plane and got out here before the hotel thing happened. So she was able to isolate here in our, in our house. And then as soon as she came out of isolation, boom, stayed into the studio and we made like a, an EP, which was great. And uh, that was, you know, like uh, for, I guess for two weeks, we're in a total bubble because we made like eight tracks and did a, a shot of video actually outside just in the, in the streets, like, um, which she sent to a friend of hers in LA and they cut it up. And so it was just so much creativity going on. And then it came time, it was like, okay. And she had to return to where she lives. And I guess that the biggest, um, for any parent or friend or, or partner who's had to sort of take someone to the airport right now, it's a really different feeling like to, yeah. to take it to the international terminal and terminal. And it was one door was operable and, it, it, you had to say goodbye on the curb and you realize that it's you're going through like the eye of a needle now and and you can't just go i'll see you in a couple of days i'll come over no mm. that doesn't apply anymore no. right now at least it's a very like I've, I've felt this feeling that i've never felt before it was this kind of like you're going across the pacific ocean and we're here and you're there and it's but what is it 22 hours later you know we're on like facetime and, and it goes back to that dynamic again and so you know we you know, kept creating, which we have been in the last couple of weeks, keep making songs, keep making stuff. There's a lot of that going around all over the globe right now. So, um, you know, it's allowed me to, having this isolation is actually, funny enough, not that different to my life normally, except normally I'd grab a couple of Pelican cases and some guitars and go out and tour every weekend. You know, that's my life is two Pelicans and a bag that has seven guitars in it at the airport. People, (laughs) some people that are listening. It's probably seen me like this little man with this massive luggage <laughs> trolley. Like, um, thank you, Qantas, for being so obliging all the time. But um, yeah, I haven't been at the airport for a while, and, and it's it's it, it's part of me that's like, God, I don't miss the airport, but I'd I'd really miss. And you know, for someone like me who travels so much, when I get to the airport these days, I see people. I go, Hi, you know, I know all the staff yeah. there. It's, yeah, it's like a part of my house. It's it's my office, and that makes me feel really really nice you know so that's i miss those people and i miss that camaraderie but you know uh i know that things will it'll you know it'll turn and rearrange and and what's what's great to see at the moment is is um you know the quality of air that 
that's been proved in so many parts of the world right now. Oh it, God, yeah, it's environmentally, really, it's 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 really Mother Nature just going like, <clears throat> you know, really she's yeah. just kind of, clearing she's her throat for a second. She's just going <clears throat> hello, you know. It's a real subtle kind of thing, and um, subtle but very profound, but. If we don't listen, then we're just idiots. That's all I can say. And I hope that's not the case because if we, as creatures, you know, if we're given this emotive, and I don't think we're, you know, I don't think we're, I think we like to think that we're exclusive to this emotive quality that we have. But if we don't use this emotive quality, then we're we're just like, what are we? We're just a machine. We're just a piece of rubbish, really, (laughs) to be honest. So, like... We have to look into that emotive thing, which, you know, um, and not be driven by those things that we know that, that only bring us like instant and very fleeting solace, which is just, yeah. you know, wealth, greed and all that sort of thing. That, that's, it doesn't that's make you happy. No, you know, it doesn't. And, and spending time with your daughter, having your children in the studio with you. I mean, it, mm. it's a great experience to be able to spend that much really? time together. So we should enjoy what we've got. Absolutely. But I, I just, yeah, I don't want to get on the soapbox, but it, it's it's, no. it's sad to see that the people that do control so much of this planet are all getting to their latter part of their lives and they still feel the need to shove as many gold bundles as they can in their pockets <laughs> before they end up in the ground or, or in ashes. I don't yeah. get it personally, but no. that's, if this isn't a wake-up call to that, for those people, it's like, come on, guys. And I will say guys because most of them are guys. Yeah, white, um, middle-aged men. Yeah. It's like, man, yes, exactly. Yeah, unfortunately. And yeah. it's not going to give you a better place when you're like, when you are just dust. So let, just let go. <laughs> it's probably giving you the opposite to the better place if you are just dust. You know, when you've got thousands and thousands of millions and you're still not happy, it's like, what is up with that? Yeah, anyway. yeah. I think something that I've definitely taken from even just talking to you and stuff is that we are we are um, we're living a different life now, and I think we're very lucky and we should be very appreciative of what we. I'm here homeschooling yeah. my daughter and loving every minute of it because I think what's the alternative? Mm. I would, I'm 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 loving that we're learning things together and I'm getting this time with yeah. her. So she's only going to. I, gonna I look so back long. at this, like the six years that we spent in New York, where I I had to tour very uh consciously you know so i'd come back and do some touring here and i was playing in new york um but that was literally like i could walk to where the the gigs that i was doing in the east village and stuff but but that time i was always the dad that was at all the school things you know like they go oh we got this thing on now and and we need a you know, parent would be great. And of course I'd go in um, as flattering as it was, it was kind of a bit awkward, but they'd always think I was the nanny. But yeah, it was, I realized that not many other parents were of fathers were, were hands on yeah. like, like that at that time. Yeah. Tom raised his three kids. I was, very, I was lucky. I, yeah, I lived on a farm, used to milk a cow. We built our own house, three children. I was president of the PNC dance mother. <laughs> You name it, like I was there, yeah. yeah well, that's the point that I was, yeah, so that's exactly right. There was a lot of dads, especially probably mm. in their 50s, that would be regretting that they didn't do that. No. So, that book that Steve Bedolf wrote um, called Raising Boys. Yeah. Um, there's a chapter about, you know, the, you know, what they call ADD or, you know, kids, uh, boys especially, that have this attention deficit thing. And this, he writes it off as being a lot of the time it's dad deficit disorder. They're just not getting enough dad in their lives, wow. you know? Yeah. Well, as long as 
I, I will agree with that too, obviously a point. My daughter has two mums and I had no dad, but I, yeah. but I do kind of agree that there is definitely a deficit of, I think the deficit can be sometimes seeing that you have a parent mm. and then not having any relationship with them. That can be much more of a deficit to me. Absolutely. Than, you know what I mean? So Hang on, let me get a cigarette <laughs> and I'll lay back on the couch. It's like a therapy lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, we should finish it up so we can make something amazing out of this. Look, you you began Sunset Suburbia Project last year. Did I hear it's a trilogy? So you released two EPs already. Is there more? Yeah. we. I was going to do like three EPs and then the album and, and then it just became uh, a cluster, as they say. Uh, I realised that there was, it was going to almost compete with itself. So just don't worry about the EP3. We'll, we'll just go to the album and... It's actually kind of good because it gives the album a bigger chunk of unheard stuff as well. Yeah. yeah that was always a bit strange to me. It's like, how's that going to work? We're going to have so many tracks that haven't been heard yet. But yeah, it's, it's a bit more like tasting plates along the way to the main course for me. And at, at the time, like last year, I, I, I tour a lot every year, yeah. except for this year so far. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, making the EPs kind of suited my lifestyle more of, of kind of doing it in like bite-sized chunks like that, um, three or four songs in a, in a sitting and then pack sort of like turn it off. Uh, well, when I say turn it off, like uh, the process for me, because I play almost everything, um, we get my drummer in and we'd sort of bang out some stuff and then he would leave me and I'd finish it off and then I'd get him back again. But normally I would have like these things called demos. Yeah. Yeah. Old school. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, like even if it's just like a memo or something, something where you can hear the song from start to finish. And so, you know, my, my drummer's a very, his, his other thing is, is he's an incredible builder and, and just amazing with his hands and he's very methodical and very, you know, attention to detail. So he likes to kind of know what he's doing. That sounds like <laughs> um, a good drama to me. Like it, well. like anybody, yeah. But in this case, I said, dude, are you okay if we just sort of, if you come in and I'm just going to like, well, we'll just plug in and have you ready and we'll, I'll just play. And, and he's like, well, yeah, okay. You know, mm-hmm. I could tell that he was like, hmm, this will be interesting. But um, um, after we got through the first three or four songs, he was, you know, it's like, well, you know, okay, well, that seems to be going okay. Um, what else can you pull out of your ass sort of thing? Um, because, I mean, literally, like I'd heard of records being made like this where people go in the studio and just the pressure of, like, we're in the studio, we've got to do something kind of it makes things happen. But it can yeah. be horribly wrong too. And I guess for me, after doing it every other which way, um, you know, the methodical way, the planned out way, the, I've recorded this song five times, now I'm actually going to do it, you know, properly way. Um, yeah thought, you know what, it's like I've got this studio, it's a full proper studio, the money clock's not ticking uh, really like a, like a like a commercial building. Yeah. So, like, what, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, like, let's just try to make some music in the, in the studio. And so that's what we did. And it was, um, it was, it was good. It was, I need to mix things up at this point, surprise myself, I think, at this point in my career, you know? Yeah. Wow. Following the release of Sunset Suburbia, Diesel will hit the road again. It is mm. promised. Coming to the city, to a town, a suburb near you with a three-piece powerhouse band. Showcasing yeah. songs from the new album as well as is there going to be some hits from the album? Of course, album? always. I mean, I don't think I've ever done that thing where you sort of go, we're just playing this tonight, suck it up, you know, no hits, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, it's, yeah, I think if you maybe pre-warn people, that's cool. But 
um, at least like do the thing that you need to get done. And then sort of, you know, everyone that I've seen, even, you know, someone like, you know, Neil Finn, for instance, you know, he'll do a whole conceptual yeah. thing and then he'll play some songs that everyone wants to hear. Yeah. It's it's just good for everybody. It's good for so, the artists. That, so, well. so that is a good point, actually, because Neil Finn, someone I saw um, at Golden Plains um, a couple of years ago, and it was unreal from us in an yeah. audience perspective to not to – but I, I couldn't help but we all got into, you know, festival talk about how he must have done that song a thousand times, yet the yeah, audience was vibing so big because obviously mm. it was ones we all knew. Yeah. Is there a moment where you go, I hate this song, but it seems to please everybody? <laughs> That's just, no, thankfully. But there's a few of those times where I'm just playing away and just going, I'm just not enjoying this at all, but God, they're enjoying it. And I've just got to just suck it up and just go, it's for them. It's for them. It's not me tonight. And I think every artist has those nights where you just go, it was for them tonight. It was not for us. And, you know. Surely there's got to be a, there's got to be a change off that they give you. Yeah. They give you the burst as well sometimes by doing it. Absolutely. Look, you heard it. He is coming back. He's preparing. He's making sure that he's got music for you. Uh, it'll be fan favourites. It'll be new stuff, which is amazing. You can follow him at Diesel underscore music and check out the latest tracks wherever you choose to stream them from. Thank you. Ciao. Wrap up your Thursdays with Tom and Jess on Joy Drive. Tune into 94.9 in Melbourne, stream live at joy.org.au or download the Joy app. Find all our podcasts at tomandjessradio.com or subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Joy Podcasts, where you want them, when you want them. Thanks for listening to another Joy Podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.